And every time you hear the word Belgium, you have to, you know, rattle your groggers. Yeah, you, these guys are just so loud in my earballs, but also in my face. Earballs is a great name for a band. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined by my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick. Hello, happy March. Deputy editor of Tablet Magazine and her subordinate, Tablet Senior, <laughs> tablet senior Writer, uh, who reports to the deputy editor, Liel Leibowitz. You may speak. Who, who reports only to God. Uh, happy third Israeli elections to you. Third time's the charm. Or one could say happy Super Tuesday to all of Masse you. Masse Super Tuesday. Masse ordinary <laughs> elections that happen on the same calendar every four years. Everything. It's very, that must be so quaint. So weird. And it's in the Constitution, the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. <laughs> like You guys, you mean you actually know when the next election's going to be? And still we have How like do you decide? 12% turnout. We can literally plan ahead four years and we have low turnout. Isn't that just so Ain't that's something. American. Another one that's on the calendar, though it's a calendar nobody understands. Purim is coming. It's and Adar, baby. The As they say, Purim is coming. Purim is coming. <laughs> now, I've asked this question before. I think I ask it every year. Israelis use the January, February calendar, right? Yes, but we also you are also deeply know, attached. But yes. You know them both. Yes. So wait, wait. On a given day, let's say, okay, so right now it is March 3rd here. If I say to someone walking down the street in Tel Aviv, like, hey, what day is it in Adar? Do they know? Yeah, they'll definitely get Adar. Okay. If they'll be like, oh, is it the sixth or the eighth? Like, you may miss a couple of days, but definitely within striking distance. It's not quite as as good as my Canadian friends who are bilingual in Celsius Fahrenheit. Because yes. They oh my, really, that like hurts my brain. They can just feel it. Like, they can walk outside. The way we can say it's about 55 Fahrenheit, right. they can also say it's whatever it's Celsius. Like, that's that's math I cannot do. degrees <laughs> outside right now. Now I would like some poutine. Uh, yes. It is the Mansa Vadal. So it is Purim. Soon. If you're secular and you're, you have not been in shul, you haven't seen Rosh Chodesh, you don't know that it's switched over to Adar. Oh, but it doesn't matter. How do you know? Because the whole calendar is a Jewish calendar. Like, the holidays are Jewish holidays. So you move in from one to another. So you know, oh, we're moving from Adar to Nisan to you know, Av. Like Tisha B'Av, what month right, is that, that on? Is, oh, it's the ninth <laughs> of the month Av. of Av. Like, I mean, that is a secular. really good hack, just calling holidays by their days. <laughs> right? That's right. It's if, November 26th. Right. What is, when if, is Thanksgiving? If, the 27th? Only we called, actually, Thanksgiving is Changes? a Thursday. Yeah. Always a Those Thursday. confuse Sorry. me. But St. Patrick's Day is always, and I was like 37 before I do this, it's always March 17th. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? That's Did right. you know that? It's the March 17th. It's March 17th. It's no, but you know I never know what day Christmas is. For a long time, I thought Christmas was like a Tuesday in December. That Whoops. is the Jewish bubble. It's like it's a, <laughs> Burst you actually, in. You actually thought it was in Adar. You just yeah, didn't I was know like it. Adar any, too. Any, any given Tuesday. <laughs> any given Tuesday. Okay, but wait, wait. Let me press a little bit deeper here. You're like, well, but it's the Jewish counter. But the thing is, secular Israelis don't know or care about it. They've heard of Tisha B'av, but they don't observe it at all. They observe but isn't it, it observed around them. First of all, just by virtue of every single restaurant being closed, yes, you kind of observe it and know it's around. All okay. the newspapers would run op-eds about this and okay. like, this Tisha B'av, it's important to remember that we shouldn't hate one another. It's it's in the air, you know? <laughs> so the way it's that I know that we're moving towards St. Patrick's Day because all of the pubs in New England have, are supposed to start putting up green bunting. Green beer. Even though it's not my holiday, I just, I can't escape it. That's the way it is with I was in Israel on, on Tisha B'Av. It was like the second night we got there and we were like, oh, oh my God, we're not going to have anywhere to go. And so these restaurants stay open, but they get a fine. But yes. they decide it's worth, the, you know, the trendy restaurants say it's uh-huh. worth a fine because they get so much business because no, no one else can go to any other restaurant. Right. Okay. Let's, who's, who's on the show this week besides <laughs> us? Our show is, in fact, Purim Inflected this week. We're going to have a carnivalesque conversation with fashion world icon Isaac Misrahi. And we're going to talk with Simi Polanski and Chaya Hanin, who are the sisters behind The Frock NYC, a company that offers high-end, modest clothing for the 
religious but fashion forward women. Sneers in style. This world. We're also going to talk with Rabbi Ari Lam, who is going to give us a, a quirky alternative reading, an alt reading, if you will, of Purim, uh, explaining why this holiday ain't exactly what you thought it was. But first, before we do any of that, we have to have the ritual presentation of the gifts. Uh, Liel and I, we've each been carrying around a gift we've been meaning to give to the other. It is Adar, after I, all. I finally put it in my backpack this morning before I got on the train. And this is now what it this, is a— Describe this this thing of great beauty. This is a beautiful color photograph, you know, three by five or so, four by six, of a beautiful uh, a feline creature. I think it's called a, a cat. cat. A cat. I, I believe so. Sort of a golden colored cat lying back, lolling Cats, happily. The Belgians of the animal world. <laughs> and it's in a frame, a sort of gold sequiny sparkly frame. What do you think this is, Liel? I'm, I'm presenting it to you. I am so baffled by it. This cat, I can't look wait, away. Here's what I think. It's very this shiny. This is not Mark's cat, and this is not something that Mark created. Correct. Because it would be very, very rude if Mark gave you a picture of a cat and not right. me. Correct. So I think this is something that someone gave you mm-hmm. along your various routes mm-hmm. across the country the recently. Jewish byways. I agree. Yes, the, the highways Jewish Bible and byways. Um, the highways. So someone gave this to you and said, give this to Liel. That is where I end because I don't get the cat connection. Why would anyone ever do that? You are Again, still offended. <laughs> you are 5,000%. My feelings are very hurt. Correct. Grace came up to me in, I know who this is. In Why I'm Missing. You know this cat? Pennsylvania. Oh, I know this cat. And handed me this. She was with her mother. They were lovely, wonderful people. They came up to me after my great event in Why I'm Missing, PA, the JCC of, of Greater Reading, Pennsylvania, and handed me this. said, would you please give this to Liel? It is a picture, a photograph of our cat, Grace said, Tevya Liel. And this is the cat she named after you. I mean, middle name, anyway. Tevia, Tevia Liel. Liel. I now pronounce you the only acceptable cat in all of Catham. This is amazing. You are the one true cat, and I will cherish your golden <laughs> photograph. This is the high up, priest. Upon, upon my mantle. I, <laughs> like, what I get from people is mezuzahs being sent to me. I want pick more pictures of cats sent, printed eh, have, and sent to you me. You have enough cats. I get nothing. All right. And no, I would like to say- something right now. I get something right you now. You get something right now. Is it, a, is it a corduroy shirt for my status as the corduroy rav? Listeners, that's what I want. If you're so inclined, send send the corduroy rav a corduroy shirt, size for, medium, <laughs> for his collection. Can you be the corduroy rav on this podcast, or is that just like your it's your, an, your, your nom de daf on, on every podcast? I am now the corduroy rav. Uh, so I went to the YU to the Yeshiva University Seforum sale, which is the amazing sale that the students put out once a year to sell amazing you know books. There was a very fine swag section this year, and among the swag section. I noticed the falling shirt, which I think kind of incorporates a lot of of your religious, spiritual energy and sensibility. <laughs> Show it to uh, us. I'm going to read it. It's a purple shirt. Stephanie, what, is, what does it say? It's a nice jersey tee. The tea. best love is Breslov. Wow, uh, that is a deep cut to the Breslover Hasid community. <laughs> Who is buying that shirt besides you for Mark? Breslover Hasids and people stoned out of their minds is the answer, which frequently is kind of the same thing. The great thing about this shirt, and thank you, Liel. The great thing about this shirt is when I wear it, 999 people out of 1,000 will walk by and not notice my shirt. And one person will stop me and be like, dude, <laughs> awesome shirt. I like that you see 1,000 people in a day. <laughs> right. Is that how many people are people. in New Haven? One person would be like, <laughs> I would like to marry you. Thank you. I will. I, I, as we discussed earlier, um, you said they don't. You said you have a present for me. They didn't have a size medium. I note that it's a size XXL. Yes. <laughs> but, but it's yeshivish XXL. So it's, it's like a size, you know. <laughs> 
half half large in it's, it's XXL normal. for small men and yes. so it is big not brains. that big I have to say no one brought me anything so thank you both it's been really great podcasting with you I hate you forever <laughs> listeners please step up I need a corduroy shirt Stephanie needs something to make her feel like she belongs but Stephanie what's going on in your life Nothing. Nothing? I, we had a great event in Naples. Mark and I finally hit the road, the two of us. Yep. And we had like a, we had a great thing going. Um, Bob Mankoff, the former New Yorker cartoon editor, was, was the great. other speaker. It yep. was very oh, fun. He's going to come on the show. It was wonderful. That reminds me, I need to buy that mug, that the Moses cartoon from the New Yorker that shows him parting the Red Sea. And people are like, he's all right. I just wish he was a little more pro-Israel. <laughs> and that is like my favorite thing. <laughs> Speaking of, of media figures, the New York Times ran an article this week on that they've probably run before and that they could have run years ago, but they're finally catching up that there are women who perform ritual circumcisions, as the Gentiles say, that there are female moils. And Mo- who is in the Mohelets. picture? Front and center and front looking and center fab. Is David Walter Oppenheimer's moil, my son's moil, Emily Blake, Dr. Emily Blake, a former guest on our show on Unorthodox, and she gets some love from the New York Times. Uh, also in my media consumption diet this week, I want to remind the listeners in the J Crew that I've been watching the TV show, the reboot on Hulu of High Fidelity. You are all assigned to go watch the original movie with John Cusack. We're going to be discussing it uh, in a couple weeks. And to our listeners out there who are obsessed over TV shows, no, we have not gotten to Hunters yet. We have lives. We're we in understand. the 80s. You're very excited because we got like 7,803 messages on Facebook. Have you watched this? It's about Nazis. Like we, we understand. Uh, it's just, you know, life is short. The Facebook group was interesting this week, though. That was the thing our listeners were most obsessed with. What was the thing that kind of got our attention in the Facebook group? Another thing that roiled our Facebook group which is one of my favorite places on the internet, was I like article. that you think of it as a place. It is a place. It's a place. It's a, it's it's a, a place. beautiful it's a walled safe garden space. on the internet where all my all best right. friends live. Yeah, that's right. Right. The article is called, Does Religion Influence Your Choice of Pet? An unusual new study examines the link between religious views and pet ownership. Let me find what it says here about the Jays. Jews, the second lowest percentage of pet owners, aren't exactly feline friendly. None in the survey owned a cat, but 62% owned dogs. Jews were also more likely than other groups to own a bird or a small mammal and least likely to have fish. So it's like, I don't know what to extrapolate from this bizarre survey of like 35 people. Right, That's was- the thing. Then, then you read the bottom line and like all, literally all of these surveys, like amount of Jews actually surveyed. Four. Four. The four we could find. <laughs> I asked of four, four Jews in Minnesota. None of whom are fish owners. Right. I will say, so then our producer, Josh Cross, created his own poll, a more scientific poll in the Facebook group. And got 15 times the number of actual live Jews to respond than the other Fakakta poll. So I'll tell you, I want the ranking. Yeah, of, what did of our people? listeners okay. say about pet ownership? Should I go from the bottom or the top? The top, baby. Okay, yeah. who won? Biggest. Who's the best animal? Dog Dogs. wins. Who's a good boy? Dog wins. Dogs Dogs good dogger. Win. F and A. Cat goes second. Yeah. The, the species, not my pet for, for for bringing to you cats no pets ew is number three uh-huh good no pets but not you is number four <laughs> fish is five some other non-furry thing then some other furry thing then finally some other combination of a large non-human menagerie so this is great we have like a nice sample size here i think we should take this to like to peer review at this point what i love about this is there was a survey that got coverage in the minnesota newspaper that surveyed 32 humans we got 
what, 250 Jew responses in like, what? You can speak. It's it's more like 500. We got- Wait, did they, are they definitely 32? I just made that number up. Uh, somebody, one of our listeners, hey guys, it's Josh, the producer. One of our listeners went in and looked at the data that the Minnesota study used. The whole poll is like 700 people and 32 Jews were in there. Oh, so, so and we, they got 32 Jews in their entire poll and we got 500. Yeah, we like have more Jews than minutes. you. We basically are a leading Jewish research think tank. We'll take your foundation grant money now, please. We are the leading- explicator of Jewish trends in the world. Moving on to news of the Jews in the world, other trends, apparently Belgium's not the only place where they put offensive anti-Semitic caricatures in their carnivals. Uh, There's a carnival float in Spain that featured Nazi uniforms and trains with crematoria. And Brazilian carnival recently featured costumes with swastikas. And a local Jewish leader, of course, leapt to defend it, as they always do. And this is one of the most disturbing things is wherever they have anti-Semitic parades, there's some poor, sad local Jews like, no, my city's not anti-Semitic. They're really nice to me. They haven't killed me. Uh, And the parade is meant in good fun. And in some ways, like, what it is to be an American Jew, I think, is to be able to say, uh-uh. Yeah. No, we don't do We're not cowering like these, the Corbin apologists or the Belgium apologists right. or whatever. And it's, it's when we see anti-Semitism, we can say, yep, that's anti-Semitic. Might not be the end of the world. Might not be Auschwitz, but like, let's call it for. But it's for, a carnival about Auschwitz. I'm celebrating my own carnival and I'm having a float to celebrate 67% unemployment. Hey, Spain. <laughs> I just think people need to get a little more creative. Like, I know we say never forget, but like pick a new joke. Get a new costume. Right. Get a little bit more creative. You want that. a subtler anti-Semitic story. No, and, I just a new want like holo just, costume. If you yeah, will. it's just. I mean, it's so stupid. It's so easy. And right. you're like, just be more creative. Right. Like, why the, does your hateful costume have to be about us? It's got to be more than just and, a and little I, mustache and an armband. You know way, what I'm saying? I'm sorry, Spain. What the flip? Like, you want to do something Jewish? You have the Inquisition. It's literally your thing. You did it. Just fucking do like auto de fe and shit. Like it is you. You invented this culture. You invented this. Don't Uh, steal from the Germans. What's wrong with you? (laughs) Here in America, the uh, this is definitely my favorite news of the Jews headline this week. The hot pockets heiress got five months in the admission scandal. So you remember the admission scandal where dumb parents of dumb children were buying their way into mediocre universities. But so far, no Jews had been involved in this. Right. We thought we thought it was a Jew-free scandal. Yeah, like a white collar crime that had nothing to do with us. <laughs> dumb Gentile, dumb Gentile, dumb Gentile writing checks. Ah, uh, well, no, we couldn't dodge this one. Michelle Janovs, heiress to the Hot Pockets fortune, got sentenced to five months in prison and has to pay a fine of $300,000. She paid somebody to fix her daughter's ACT scores so the kid could go to USC, University of Southern California, as a fake beach volleyball player. <laughs> Which is When I read that, I had to read that like nine times. Wait, 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 wait. You got her in as a fake Beach volleyball play, not even a fake rower bas- or volleyball player. They play on fake beaches. The beaches are all man-made. <laughs> Extreme Frisbee was taken. <laughs> so because I'm professionally obligated to find out if anyone with an ethnic-ish last name is a Jew, I was like, Janavs, Janavs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google Hot Pockets. I'm going to find out about the yichus of the Hot Pockets fortune. And it turns out like her dad was a Persian Jew who thought, Let's stuff food inside little crusty things. And he made a trillion dollars. And she's the beneficiary. She, that was his genius. He, he was that smart. And 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 it dumbed down a little. And she couldn't even think of her own microwavable treat and just inherited his money and bought her daughter's way into USC. As I just want to say that we hear a lot player. about Ashkenormativity. <laughs> 
and I like this Persian Jewish representation. Yes. It's not Absolutely. just white it's Jewish just guys us. going to jail. Right, it is up. like it right. is not just people named women can do it. Sephardi can Take do that, it. Take that, Bernie Madoff. Yeah, <laughs> we'll show you. Also, congrats to the little Tarantino. Son of Quentin Tarantino and Daniela Pick, Israeli supermodel, because all models have to be referred to as supermodels. Correct. There are no ordinary models. That's right. He had his bris, and his name was revealed as Leo, which is my Starbucks name in this country. So I love it. It's my American persona. <laughs> I think it's very cute. They say he was named for Pick's maternal grandfather, Ari Shem Or. And Ari is lion in Hebrew. I'm learning all of this, um, I think, from like the Daily Mail or something like that. And Ari means lion. Leo is lion. I like it. I think it's very cute. Leo Tarantino. Can you imagine hey, Leo. Th- 30 years from now, Israeli Prime Minister Leo Tarantino said yesterday, it's great. It's like an amazing cultural amalgam. I like it. You joke, but like that's not in, a, not world, in a world in which Donald Trump can be. Right. Pr- like, why, why, would wouldn't, I, if, why would I joke about something like that? If you're Israel and you're little yeah. Tarantino, he's famous there. Yeah. Right? Like he'd have a, a, a leg up by the time he's 30 years old. He'll be an, a, a member of Knesset. He would have an amazing army career. Yeah. Uh, sports update. Which of you would like to give us the important sports update for this week? The Yeshiva University men's basketball team is headed to the NCAA tournament. The Fighting Maccabees. Division three. I know it's Purim, but we're having a Hanukkah miracle. Um, so, Liel, what's what's the latest with, with the team? So, I thought it would be really cool to give a ring to Elliot Steinmetz, the legendary coach who took this team across the sea. Are you giving him a championship ring? Red what are you sea doing? And and went all the way to the NCAA tournament. And Coach Steinmetz really had some words of wisdom. Oh, to you share. called him, giving I him a gave ring. Him I get a it. Ring. Oh, yes, not a championship <laughs> ring, <laughs> not which yet. he will win by himself. We have our own bracket. It's pretty, pretty tough. Pretty soon, <laughs> I gave him a call to hear some words of wisdom from the world's leading Jewish coach. Have a listen. Coach Elliot Steinmetz, you are a hero of the Jewish people. What an achievement. Mazel tov. Thank you. I, I wouldn't use the word hero, but I appreciate it. I have a million questions for you. But first of all, your players play with yarmulkes on. Is there like a sports yarmulke? Is it like a special design that, you know, is more ergonomic or fits better on the head during games? So most of our guys wear them. Uh, there's no like special secret to it. They really kind of choose whatever they're comfortable with. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen anything that's made specifically for sports, although maybe it's a good business idea for you to pursue. Um, but I, uh, I think the guys kind of just choose whatever they're comfortable wearing. You know, I, I know a lot of basketball teams have plays and, and some of the plays have names. Now, someone told me that you have a play called The Warrior. I'm wondering, are we talking Judah Maccabee, Ariel Sharon? What? Tell me a little bit about that play and who's it named after. Oh, that's funny. It, it actually has nothing to do with anything Jewish, believe it or not. It's, it's, it's a play we actually stole from the uh, Colton State Warriors. <laughs> when we did it, though, we did laugh at the fact that, you know, obviously the, the Maccabees and everything like that. We did laugh at the uh, coincidence behind it, but uh, it was not named for anything so on a slightly more serious note, you're playing out there, and I think it's not an exaggeration to say that you have really become one of the very, very few things in Jewish life on which Jews of all spectrums of religious observance, political ideology, what have you, can completely agree. I mean, the pride that people take in you, Orthodox and Reformed Jews, people from everywhere, is just immense. Does this something that enter your considerations when you play? Do you think to yourself when you take the court, like, we are now representing the entirety of the Jewish people, or do you just try not to think about it and just win a basketball game? 
it's definitely something we've talked about. And, you know, our guys saw it a couple of years ago when we had a run to the NCAA tournament for the first time in school history. We were hearing from people all over the world. You know, our team is kind of made up of all different kids from different diverse backgrounds within the Jewish religion. And it is something that I think we think about and something I think the guys take a lot of pride in. Because we do hear from people and we do hear, you know, a lot of feedback from people on what they feel about the team and what and what we're accomplishing. It's definitely something that we take to heart and it's a responsibility I think that we take seriously. When you prepare to go up and take the court, and is there like a special prayer? Is there a special little Dvar Torah that, that someone gives? We prepare pretty much like every other team would. You know, we have our scout, we have our pregame conversation. The one unique thing would be that you know, we have a number of our players like to go into the locker room about two minutes earlier than we usually do. And they, they have a little Dvar Torah that one of our players who's in the rabbinic program gives before each game. That's usually a Torah message, but it you know, certainly pertains often to the competition or a game or something regarding athletics, which I think is a nice touch and something that's certainly unique about Yeshiva University. Coach, I think it's no exaggeration to say that the entirety of Jews everywhere throughout history thank you and are rooting for you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. And finally, uh, an obituary, a farewell this week. Michael Hertz died. You don't know his name, but you know his work. You've seen his subway map. He is the guy who designed the iconic map of the New York underground, of the New York subway system. This is a new segment I think we're calling like This Week in Emails from Uncle Myron. Right, yeah. T-W-I-E-U-M. That's that's what we'll call it. Uh, Did you hear who died? Can you believe a Jew made the subway map? who designed the map for the subway. But anyway, Michael, we'll miss you. I I look at your creation basically every day. The subway doesn't work, but your map still does. (laughs) It's Purim, so we wanted to get crazy. And who's crazier in a good way than designer, author, and fashion world icon Isaac Mizrahi? He dropped by and talked to us about growing up in Flatbush, designing clothes, and so much more. Have a listen. I am here with designer, author, and fashion world icon, Isaac Mizrahi. Welcome to the world's leading Jewish podcast. Hi, so great to be here. Um, My favorite thing about you, I have to say, is your name, because there's no better Jewish name than Isaac Mizrahi. It's true, right? I also um, think that I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about having a name that kind of stands out a little bit, like Isaac, because people don't necessarily forget that name as easily, you know? So, and I grew up liking it too. You know, sometimes you hear from people that they hate their name when they're kids and then they grow to like it. But I loved my name from the minute I had it. And reading your excellent memoir, I Am, which is not just like a celebrity memoir. It's actually a very, very good book. Thank you so much. (laughs) Your mother is Sarah. Yeah. And she had you at what, 35? Four, the 34 and a half, yeah, almost 35 years old. Mm-hmm. So she was, she saw herself as a biblical Sarah, <laughs> yes, right? Right, yeah, she could have been 90, <laughs> exactly. But it was not lost on us, you know, this idea that Isaac was begat from Sarah, right? Um, and that she was older. And in those days, that was like practically 90, you know, like in 1961 when I was born doctors warned her that it was dangerous to be pregnant at such an old age. I know it's crazy, you know, but it's true. And so the the world knows you as this high energy creative force. I feel like if you turn on the TV in the last decade, you are on it no matter what it is, whether it's Project Runway or QVC. I mean, everyone sort of knows you. Your talk show, yes. For seven years, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I imagine that that 
vivaciousness wasn't necessarily always appreciated, particularly in the Brooklyn Syrian Jewish community in which you were raised. No, it was not appreciated. It was um, it was reviled, actually, you know. Um, and on a level that I don't think anyone would be able to conceive right now, you know, um, bullying and criticism on levels that you would find shocking, you know, like bullying from rabbis, you know, like not just my kid, the kids in my class, like that was easy. But when elders start to kind of pen you into this situation, it's hard. And the thing is, like, you know, I consider myself lucky because I was always very resilient and I somehow was able to kind of call upon faculties, like I was able to defend myself verbally. I always think that's why I'm good with words, because of bullies in my early life. And I was always able to come back with something, you know, it made me very sharp-tongued. Also, my mother was not the least sharp-tongued person in the world. She had a very caustic kind of sense of humor and wit. So within this somewhat insular um pretty homogenous community, your family already was was a little bit of a of a haven. Yes. Well, it was a anomalous, you know, like in the book I go into, you know, this idea that I started doing female impersonations when I was like eight years old or something. And that was not exactly that didn't let's put it this way, that did not bring like pride and nachas <laughs> to the family. It sort of did the opposite, you know? Like I knew my parents were mortified by this. But to their advantage, to their to their credit, they didn't exactly stop me from doing such. You know, like, they didn't encourage me, but they did, they were very good at looking away, you know? And that's how I perceived it. I perceived it as them looking away. And I think that's, like, you know, I've been working on stage a lot recently. I've been doing this nightclub act. and But more and more, I mean, I've been doing it for years, you know, like, that's my thing. I, I really like to sing and I like to tell stories and I like nightclubs, you know. But there is a certain amount of shame associated with that, I think, because of my early life and doing those impersonations, you know, in the lobby of Shul, you know, doing Shirley Bassey in the lobby of Shul. It wasn't appreciated. It was, it was really like a kind of source of shame for the family, I think, you know. The Syrian Jewish community is so specific. It's not really like any other community. And I think a lot of our listeners know that there are Syrian Jews. And maybe if you've like been to Deal, New Jersey, you know that. But could you tell us a little bit about the community in which you were raised? It's so specific, like you said. It's so different from other Jewish communities, you know. First of all, it's Syrian Jews. It's not Arabic Jews. It's not Lebanese and Syrian Jews or Egyptian and Lebanese and Syrian Jews. It is Syrian Jews, right? It's that insular. Like if you're not a Syrian Jew, you're just not. And if you're not a Syrian Jew, you're not allowed to marry another kind of Jew. You're not allowed to marry an Ashkenazic Jew. You're not allowed to marry an Egyptian Jew. It's a crazy, crazy thing. I mean, they do, people do, but if you're gay and you're not going to get married, you are basically persona non grata. If you're not going to procreate and give your parents grandchildren, then- Syrian grandchildren. Syrian, Syrian purebred Syrian grandchildren, then you're nothing. I mean it. I really mean it. I'm sorry, but that was just how we were brought up. And my mom, who is 92, right? You know, she was, I keep using the word anomalous, but she was in the community in that she was extremely well-educated and well-read. She loves to read. And th that is not encouraged in the community. They don't encourage reading in that, in that Syrian Jewish community. Another crazy thing that sets it apart from Jews, because Jews like reading, you know, not so in the Syrian community. Maybe now this generation, but my mom was educated 
and she was beautiful, and she waited till very late to get married. She got married at 30, right, or which 29 like or 30 100, years old. Basically. Which is 100, In that community, well, maybe not in the most current day. Maybe now they get married at 20, you know. But when I was a kid, if you weren't married by the age of 16, you were an old maid, right? I was going to say about my mom, right, that she was educated, and she understood what was going on in the wider world. And sometimes she was very nurturing to me in that way because she was cultured and, you know, advanced and progressive. And other times, I would have to say, most times, she erred on the side of, like, traditional. And she erred on the side of hammering away at this idea that unless you procreate, you're worthless. She still does. Like, even when I see her now at 92, she's kind of hardened into this woman who just shows you pictures of her, you know, her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren, and she just talks about That's all she talks about now, you know? Like, there's no changing the subject. And so, like, that's heartbreaking. You know, it's heartbreaking because I love her and she loves me, but she isn't able, just based on who she is from her early exposure and the early sort of what, like, brainwashing and 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 training, she is unable to accept 100% who I am or even 80% who I am. She is still resisting and she is still sort of hard selling this idea that I need to be in that community and close to my sisters and somehow figuring out how to have children. I think she would even be okay with me and Arnold having kids, you know, in some way. I think she'd be okay with that. And we have decided not to. It's funny, right? Like what how people can rationalize or soften disappointment, you know? Yeah. But it's interesting because she is so proud of your success, right? And I imagine is the community, because even when people leave a community and then they become famous, I feel like people are saying like, oh, Isaac Mizrahi, he's one of us. He comes from Midwood. Do they? Do you think that happens? I think, you know, um, I think that happens, yeah. Which is insane. I think it's insane because if you read the book, it does charge them with a great deal of what I'm talking about now, about the education thing, about the misogyny, about the, 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 the blindness to, you know, any kind of, like, sexuality other than heterosexuality, right? It's blind, completely blind still. Like, if you're gay, you have to go away, you know? I think still. You know, it's a crazy thing. They are just not, there is no section for them in the shul to like sit together or be together or, or just even assimilate. There's no assimilation with gay people, you know. And there is a bit of rancor, a bit of anger that I've kept. You know, I was very angry in my 20s and 30s about it. And then I kind of, you know, actually writing the book helped me just kind of go, okay, well, this is just who they are and live and let live, I guess, you know, at least from my end. And so I think the book is framed very elegantly and very gentlemanly. And now I look back at it and I think, you know what, there might have been just a little bit more anger, a little bit more rancor. And my mother reading the book, which I think this is probably the 10th or 11th reading she's done, and she loves it, which is, I think, hilarious, you know, because I do expose things about her and about the community, but she said, oh, you know, the community and the yeshiva, they probably won't like this too much, you know? And I guess she's right. I got one or two letters from people in the community saying, like, that's just not a fair assessment, except they didn't live my life, the people who were writing to me, you know what I mean? So it's like, if they think it's unfair, then they should write a book about it. So you mentioned shul, and one of the things I loved is that shul was sort of like this place of pageantry for the women. Yeah. And it seems like a really formative place for you in terms of style and flair. Yes, and I talk about that in the book also 
a crazy reversal from what shul is supposed to be, right? Like, shul is not supposed to be a place where you notice, like, tight, low-cut dresses and high heels, right? And big hair, unless it's a shaitel. But shaitels are not supposed to be beautiful. Shaitels are supposed to do the opposite thing, which is they're supposed to detract attention and detract kind of sexual, any kind of sexual tension. That's what a shaitel is for, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm sorry, but that's the basis of the thinking. So if you tell me that shaitels are supposed to be pretty, I think like, I just don't believe you because that's not what I was taught, you know? And also if you say, oh, homosexuality, there's a whole bunch of space in there in the religion. There really isn't. I mean, if you go to the rabbinical studies, if you go to the most like sort of pure, pure, pure thinking yeshivas, they will tell you that you're supposed to throw stones at homosexuals. And they will still tell you that. So have you been able to reimagine a Jewish identity for yourself? You know, culturally, in New York City, I feel very, very Jewish. I feel extremely sort of um, fiercely Jewish. And I'm not exactly sure this, this might come across as racist or something, but I think the attributes that I sort of resonate with, that, that, that I seem to love, are this thing about education. They love education. They read their heads off. You know, if it weren't for the Jews, the world would have no great art right? Because they're such great collectors and curators. And all through that whole Nazi thing, the Nazis tried to disband and, and destroy all the art collections, and they couldn't, you know? Think about, like, European art. What would have happened without the... I mean, like, how that would have seemed without all of those incredible collections, those Jews who collected art, you know? Um, I mean that. Like, go on, and you can criticize that, and you can come for me if you want, but I can defend it. I can defend it. So those things about like their love and passion for the arts and their love and passion for education and question asking, that was one thing that stuck with me from yeshiva was that you cannot just accept things at face value. You must ask questions, right? You're always asking questions. So that kind of skepticism, I adore. Which is so ironic because that skepticism was not applied to people who were different in your in your case, right? No, no. And the skepticism in the Syrian community is looked upon as a real weakness, right? Like skepticism is not to be tolerated, right? I think that classically Judaism is about skepticism. It's about not knowing where the hell you're going, nor like even believing 100% where you came from. Because, you know, history just writes itself after a certain amount of time. So the skepticism about your past, the skepticism about your future, that's what being Jewish is to me. And it's a beautiful, beautiful trait. It's a beaut It's like, you know, like dogs that are bred like collies. They have certain breeding in them for hundreds of years to like, you know, herd sheep or something. A Jew's place, <laughs> the breeding of a Jew, is not to believe a word they are told and never to feel safe in one particular spot or another. And in that, and you know what I'm talking about yes, in that respect, <laughs> yes. right? And I love that. I think that is modern. That seems to have influenced your, your career, your fashion, your reinvention, your ability to embrace all sorts of things, no matter what the trend is. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll tell you, I don't exactly know what makes me into the man I am. I think it has a lot to do with the formative years at yeshiva and taking things from it and fighting, madly rebelling against things, you know? I do think that was a very, very important part of my makeup, right? And I'll say this, you know, when I see kids now who are being raised or who have been raised in the past sort of 20 years 
there's no resistance. And it's like, you know, and you hear about people in the big corporate world taking jobs at like, you know, Google or Amazon or something because of the wonderful cafeteria <laughs> and the berries, the fresh berries that are served every day. Exactly. Right. And like when the berries are bruised that morning or the breakfast, the bagels aren't delivered, they freak out. Their day is ruined, you know? And I feel like, I don't know if maybe I am going to die and maybe that is like my kind of work ethic and my passion or something is going to die with me and that might just be fine, you know? And everybody's just going to be like, Wally, you know, Wally, like everybody's in a pod sort of yes. floating around watching TV all day mm -hmm. long and, you know, like producing nothing, you know? Content. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I just think about that so much. Like, I think that definitely my work ethic came from yeshiva. I mean, that school, we started at 7.30 I mean, this is yeshiva of Flappish. This is yeshiva a, like flappish. a real yichus there, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not messing around. No, we're not kidding. We're not kidding. <laughs> yeshiva Flappish, I mean, we started every morning at 7.30 with prayer right, with shachit. Then you had four hours of Hebrew studies. Then you had a tiny little lunch service, right, at the end of which you said, what is it, shulchan? What is that thing at the end of? You bench at the end, right? You bench. And what is it called, the name of that prayer? Oh, I don't know. There's a, there's, there's, there's a prayer at the end uh -huh. of meals, right? And then you had four hours of studies, of uh, just, you know, English studies, like math and social studies and literature and stuff like that, till 4.30. So that is a very, very, very long day for a kid. And then, of course, like, I had piano lessons. I had homework. I had, like, a lot of stuff after school. We were just programmed, honey. We started the day early. We ended it late. And we did stuff, you know. And by the way, um, you know, I think I'm lucky for that. I think I'm lucky. And I also think, again, that I'm lucky I had stuff to push against, you know, like resist. I really think it's important for kids to have stuff that they hate. So we're talking to you just before Purim, um, which is sort of not just Jewish Halloween, but it is, right? right? It's sort yes. of a better version of it's Halloween. It's kind of a great holiday. It's one of the really great Jewish holidays. I love Purim. So did you dress up as a kid? I remember once I dressed up as a goldfish. I made this very <laughs> elaborate kind of costume that was all, it was like sort of orange and it had these fantastic like orange oak tag um, scales <laughs> that I actually cut out one by one and sort of sewed onto the costume. It was crazy. I also remember it was the first time I ever got drunk because, you know, they encourage to, you yeah. to get drunk. And at yeshiva, like at what, how old? 12 or something, you know, or 11 years old, we drank and we went and got a little bit drunk. And I remember not liking it. And that's the last, the only and last time I've ever been drunk in my entire wow. life. Yeah. I mean, I've tried drugs here and there that didn't really agree with me terribly. And that did agree with me, but I never had any kind of addiction problems or something. And I kind of always dated back to the got horror it out of, the way. of being sick over that. Yeah, I got it out of the way. Well, it's exactly. funny because perm is a time where you could do, you could have been you, right? You could dress up, you could dress however you want, and that's sort of accepted. Yeah, I mean, I have to say one thing at Yeshiva Flappish, where the carnival was that I went to, mm -hmm. where the Purim celebration was, dressed as a goldfish. It wasn't exactly. It was sort of frowned upon to come as anything but a Rosh or Esther yeah. or Haman or something, mm -hmm. you know. Like, they were like a goldfish. What is that? Where did that come from, you know? So, I mean, yes. You were ahead yes, of your time. Purim is supposed to be about dressing up. But if you can keep it to one of four costumes, we'll be happier. You know, I'm not really a costume guy, even mm -hmm. on Halloween, though I love Halloween. Halloween is one of my favorite days only because it means that the summer is finally over. And I don't <laughs> love summer, you know.
so I, but I never dress up. I have never done my face in drag. I have never done makeup on my face, except when I was a little boy and I wanted to experiment with, you know, and I remember that specifically. It was once I tried my mother's makeup and I showed up at dinner wearing like, you know, I thought I had washed it off, but it was literally, you know, makeup doesn't wash off, right? <laughs> and everybody was sitting there eating going, yeah, Isaac's wearing makeup. But I was literally eight years old or 10 years old. But I never tried it only because... I'm not exactly sure. I think this is because I'm my mother's son, but we are extremely critical about physical beauty and clothes and grooming and stuff. So I know just inherently that I would not be a very beautiful girl, right? There are certain drag queens who are so beautiful in costume and drag. I don't think I would be a great beauty. I think it would look just kind of like a travesty, you know? And these words, by the way, now, right, like, you, when you say the word travesty or figure flaw or something or fat or little or something, you can't really use words like that. And I, I'm thrilled. I'm so thrilled. It's like the end of something. Like, we're going to stop that. But when I was a kid, that's all that we talked about, you know, like fat people and thin people. And I was a big kid. I was, I was very big and I lost a good deal of weight, like almost 100 pounds when I was a teenager, you know. So. It's interesting because I feel like people use Halloween or even Purim to express themselves through clothes, but you actually get to do that all the time. That's your day job. So it's probably not the same release that it is for other people. Well, and also, but being so incredibly critical and yeah. so kind of detail-oriented and so perfection-oriented, I like a certain amount of very, very, very high-quality artifice. You know, like a good wig is everything. Human hair, someone styling it for weeks and then it goes on someone's, and it's really, you know, or like a, a like a body, you know, Marlena Dietrich in that <laughs> fucking, you know, thing that she had. It was amazing. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. any kind of body shape or Mr. Pearl makes those corsets I love, right? But I don't know. Like there's something about it that's really funny. Of course, it's all about humor. I think if you have the humor. But for me, I think I take it as a subject so seriously, the quality of the artifice, right? Like the quality of the embroidery is all what it's about, not just the sparkle. Then you have to go and look at the actual thing itself. And unless it like comes from Lesage or something, or, you know, some incredible beading facility in India, I don't need it. I would rather it just be plain, especially on me. You know what I mean? Like I dress in black all the time because I don't know, it's too much of a fuss to be that perfect with your hair coiffed and your makeup perfect and your body in the right kind of shape or diet or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So being critical, being self-critical, I manage to look this way easily. You look black great. shirt and like my hair like this. And yeah. You look great. Well, thank you. But I don't really go the costume thing. If If anything, like I have a kilt and like a tam. I mean, you know, like I have like a sari, you know, like mm -hmm. I would maybe do something ethnic, like some crazy old idea of ethnic dress. That would be great for me, you know. I used to do a little kilt thing. So where can our listeners find you now? Like, what are you up to? Well, these days I am at the Cafe Carlisle, which is incredible. I'm only there for another week, but it's a great show, and I appear there intermittently through the year, mostly this time. This is my residence there. With the doodlings. B, C, D, ooh, what you doodly do to Say you love me, really love me. Say you love me, do. I love you. Say you love me. Please believe me when you do. 
And it's really what defines my life. I work on the show for so many months. I compile all of the stuff that I talk about and this music that I work on with my band starting literally over the summer, you know, for this particular for January. We start in like July working for January. You hate the summer. I hate it. And so like I'm really happy in a studio. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy in like a music <laughs> studio we're working. But the point is that that is what really defines my life. And then we do gigs. I do like um, concerts here and there based on this show. Otherwise, I'm at QVC a lot, you know, and... Also, I write stuff for different publications, mm -hmm. but it's hard to say. And I'm working on so many um, different kind of um, entertainment business projects, more than fashion. I feel like I'm transitioning from fashion into show business. I like that. So everywhere is the answer. Everywhere can find is the you answer, everywhere. right. Isaac Mizrahi, thank you so thank much. Thank you. That was really fun. And uh, happy Purim. Happy Purim. <laughs> A fray-licking Purim. Live it up. Drink, drink, drink. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. 
Friends, just so you know, we're recording on the morning of Super Tuesday, so we recognize that the whole world may have changed news-wise, presidential campaign-wise, etc. by the time you hear this. This episode, we have so much to cover, we're not going to get to the mailbox, although last week's interviews with the Democratic Socialist from Mississippi and with Ruth Weiss brought in tons of great mail and voicemail, and please keep that coming. But this week, we've really got to talk about just the crazy stuff going on in this here calendar week, uh, not least of which is pandemic, Liel. You're a coronavirus correspondent. What's so going look, on? I grew up in Israel, and I can say this with confidence. I don't think I washed my hands until I was 24 and moved to this country. Like, I literally don't think this ever Wait, happened. So Israelis didn't invent Purell? No, they invented no just everything one, else? No one does this. Like, literally, you just rub yourself with a little raw meat, and you're well, fine, right? You're, you're good to go. You just like, put your hands in the sand. <laughs> get the uh, off. And, and then I married a wonderful woman who has so many virtues, but keeping calm and keeping on is not one of them. <laughs> no so, carrying on. And so last night, Lisa said, you now must go to Costco. I said, okay, I will go to the Costco on 117th Street. The Costco alarm and started flashing in your house. Let me tell you, the people of the island of Manhattan are not surviving this. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> if you wanted at the Costco yesterday to get the three-pound pack of prosciutto or the three wheels of brie cheese, <laughs> no way. Completely sold out. Shelves bare. If you wanted the 25-pound bag of rice... Hallelujah. As many as you want. Like I was walking down the aisle and there was a woman coming. This is incredible. With like a, a three pound bag of skinny pop popcorn in one hand <laughs> and a three pound bag of lump crab meat in the other. And she's walking and I'm picking up flour and yeast and oil. And <laughs> she's looking at me like, for Exodus. what could you do with flour? What does flour and yeast make? I was like, really? This is amazing. I want to go to the place where they're serving like brie and prosciutto through the, through I know. the quarantine. Somewhere on the Upper West Side, there's going to be just a month-long key party. It's and there's going to be like, <laughs> it's going to be shrimp cocktails. And sex. And, and there's like, you know what's sold out of? Shrimp cocktails and condoms. I mean, the, I think the answer is that you should start eating trafe. <laughs> or maybe you shouldn't eat. You should stay I... kosher because there's no there's no trafe left. To... Eating trafe is how this whole thing started. Let's not do that. So, but this is I... great because, look, I'm, I'm a quasi-prepper as is. Like, I have yeah, you really crazy are. stuff at home. Like, I have a bug-out bag with, like, iodine tablets and solar chargers and, <laughs> and he, he has it with him today purify water and stuff like that so uh, for me this is like a fantasy see i am Love with it. you generally in that i think that every epidemic is fake news like sars hantavirus yes. this that right. I, i'm always like well they're not coming for me i just i feel indestructible in those i, I feel i'm healthy. a new haven. first they come for and the manhattanites that's right first they're coming for everyone else but i'm not none of that stuff is felling me my people all live into their 90s but this one is freaking me out a little bit because some thoughtful people I know have listened to podcasts that tell them to freak out a little bit. Like, you know, people I trust have been like, well, I was listening to Shankar Vedantam and, you know, <laughs> Ari Nagel and Atul Gawande and what, like doctors, they people with medical knowledge said, no, you should freak out about this one. So I, did, I thought, look, I'm not at liberty as father of five to take this. That's true. To, to be too chill. So I went to Stop and Shop and I was thinking, I bought yeast. I bought bread flour. I'm just going to feed them challahs for a month. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I bought uh, a lot of peanut butter, the big jars of peanut butter, like the ones you can yeah. dip a young child into. <laughs> and um, could just eat David. And I came home. The t- <laughs> Did you say we could eat David? He's definitely the first. I'll be honest. I'll be Donner so party, real. Like, come on, he's then. definitely the first one to go if we have to cannibalize. <laughs> I'll be honest. But I get home and Ellie, 11-year-old Ellie looks at me and is like, Dad, what are you doing? So we explained very calmly, you know, if we have to sort of take to the mattresses, as they say in The Godfather, to go to the mattresses, month. yeah. And what she says to me, she's like, Dad, we could, if we were home for a month out of school, 
we could be a YouTuber family. Because, you know, her dream is that they, there are these families that drop out of school. I think they're all Christian homeschooling yes. families and make really high end YouTube videos mm-hmm. that then millions of people watch. And the family supports itself. The parents Amazing. pimp out their children yep. to be homeschooled YouTubers and they they survive on I the like YouTube your, ads. Your when I thinking... hear the phrase YouTube family, I think maybe a plague is not a bad idea. Right. <laughs> maybe we need a plague. So Ellie is like, Dad, it could be like the Norris Knuckles. Oh, my now, Lord. There's one percent of you out there know they these are. This is an Australian family with six children whose names are Disco Chance, Naz, they're like beautiful blonde children. Biggie. Yeah, and they have and they have hip hop names. Biggie, Disco, Chance, and Naz are four of them. And they're yeah, blonde Australian Christians. And they the kids don't go to school and they make a YouTube video every day in which they do challenges. Like who can sit still the longest gets five hundred dollars from mom and dad. They, that's oh all they God, do. That's is, cr- That's like what you do already. That's you're right. Not, it's, called, you're not... it's called parenting. It's like pa- parenting is game show. So my kids' vision of this is they will stay home, eat peanut butter and challah, and make YouTube videos. And this will be our chance to break out as you a guys YouTuber. could be like the. Jew, the YouTubers, the YouTuber like you can make family. Jewish videos. Oh, I love. We never this. know. Such I things. will say that I'm a low key prepper, so we've been like slowly stocking up. What I want to avoid is the the rush of people to Whole Foods. Like I, I can't be. That's yeah. that's you don't just so we, that scene. So we've been like slowly amassing things that we could both work from home for a while. The problem is, I will say the cat. Like I've gotten so much cat food over the past few oh, weeks because it's to like go. if like I can Stop go without food for a few days, like. If the, Stephanie, the cat, the cat is food. No, but I'm saying the cat. If we might have to eat our son, you're gonna have to eat your cat. But I'm just saying. A hangry cat is something I cannot deal with. I can deal with a hangry husband, but like a hangry cat is just, that's too far. I can't. What floor do you live on? Uh, the fifth. Problem, yeah. problem enough, solved. Enough to kill. <laughs> Let's do Israeli action in like 90 seconds okay. and we're out of here. Um, this is a really exciting week because I think, was it the 14th Israeli election happened? What's the, going on? The ninth Israeli election. So the third Israeli election, guys, happened yesterday. First is the worst, second is the best, third is the one. Rishon, with the... Then election Shani, then election Shloshi. <laughs> can then... I just say in, in, in celebration of my people, it was the third election in a year. It was the highest voter turnout since 1999. Wow, so people, people realized they delivered. had to come out because it really mattered. And what they delivered, as as it appears right now, we're recording this on a Tuesday, just a few hours after the, the official count has ended. Uh, what they delivered is a giant victory for our man, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, who won 100,000 votes more than he did last time. And even though he, he doesn't seem like he has a clear path to... Uh, anything to anything quite <laughs> yet. Uh, the narrative in the Israeli media, and I think rightfully so, is that the blue and white party sort of crashed and burned, and Bibi really electrified the base, and it looks very likely that he would return to the so wh- threequel BB three. What does this uh, the mean revenge. for the ice cream supply in the whatever house they live in? Um, well, ice cream, that's the only scandal I care ice cream about. Sara Netanyahu's ice cream scandal. Ice cream actually kind of has been a big theme in this election because you know the the Israeli expression for if at first you don't succeed, try try again is palm shlishit glida or third time you get ice cream. So literally, third election we get a, Israel person, gets ice cream. Every person I know on Facebook yesterday posted photos with like of ice cream uh, in the ballot with like a huge like ice cream cone with you know, And so amazing. is he going to still be like indicted for corruption? What's going to happen? Oh, there's so many scenarios. <laughs> What tune is this country? His, I mean, his I can't trial speak. begins March 17th. So <laughs> tune remember, in next week. Sweeps. That's sweeps week. Remember, right. Stephanie, you and I could be citizens tomorrow if we wanted. That's it's right. there for the taking. Wow. You think your politics are funny? No, 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 no. Our politics are funny. I am here with sisters Simi Polanski and Chaya Khanin. They are the design duo behind the Frock NYC, a company that offers high-end, unique, modest clothing. 
Welcome to you both. Let's start out with you each introducing yourself. Hi, I'm Simi Polanski. I'm Chaya's youngest sister. We're both from Sydney, Australia, and we now live in New York, in Crown Heights. And hi, I'm Chaya Hanan. I'm the older sister by 18 months. You guys are wearing very cool, drapey, covered, but very fashionable things. I'm assuming these are both from your company? Yes. When you look at us, are you like, oh, wow, they're such modest dresses? No, I'm looking at you being like, wow, those girls are chic AF. Will you describe what you're wearing? Right. Okay. So I'm wearing um, what we call the black Marrakesh. It's a gauzy, summery dress with buttons all the way down, which I've buttoned up like, you know, a few. You can see my cool (laughs) shell necklace. And I'm wearing our laid on top of our full easy pants. And I've opened those buttons up like till about mid thigh, I would say. So you could see the whole ensemble of the layering look. I'm wearing our classic frock shirt dress. It's basically an oversized boyfriend style shirt dress. And when, usually when you buy shirt dresses, they're either too short. So they're usually like mini, oversized and cool. And you don't want to add something or wear something underneath. So we finally created our own version, which covers the knee for those that want to wear something longer. But what's cool about it is you look at it and because it's got a soft rayony drapey fabric, it's like, oh, it's got a great silhouette that kind of folds and it looks like a really interesting piece. Right. You don't look at her and be like, oh, she's so covered and like, you know, it's got this really cool cool effect, like she said. And so was modest dressing something you guys were raised with? Absolutely. We're daughters of um, Rabbi and Rebbitson, and our mom from the age of, let's say, two, three, were dressing us in matching big floral covered, you know, dresses, which was quite a standout. We grew up in Coogee Beach in Australia, which was a short shorts, bikini sort of surf environment. Looking back into our childhood, the only thing that I remember fighting about with my mom, not the only, but... It's such a big deal. I remember always fighting about what we were wearing because she wanted us to be really covered. And as young kids and teenagers, I did not, and neither did Chaya. No one around us was covered, and it wasn't cool. And I hated standing out and being different. And I think that was, for both of us, the biggest drive for us to say, like, we want to maintain our faith, but we also don't want to feel like we can't wear what we want. And that was a big impetus behind our design aesthetic today. Right. There was no such thing as like this sort of modest fashion woman. You couldn't be cool and fashionable at the same time. There was just, it was no way. You're either at the beach being cool or you're being covered wearing. Not literally. No. (laughs) Or you're being covered because your mom, our mom made us wear like a longer skirt, pantyhose. And we love our parents. They're very forward thinking. So we did want to mesh their lifestyle and upbringing with our creativity. And they gave us a space to do that, which was really a blessing. It's kind of interesting because the more time you spend in New York City, the more recognizable sort of like orthodox women are, right? You see like a woman and then you see sort of like maybe a bunch of daughters and they're all wearing sort of like a denim Mm -hmm. skirt or that like stretchy material skirt Mm -hmm. that goes past their knees. And they all are wearing basically the same thing in different sizes. Was it like things would just get passed down and everyone was in the same type of outfit? Yeah, there wasn't many options of what to wear and what to buy. I mean, definitely in New York City, there's a vast clothing supply for the Orthodox Jewish community of very similar standard modest dressing clothing. So you definitely see that here. We didn't grow up in a Jewish, like a very highly Orthodox Jewish neighborhood like you see in New York. So we didn't have as many options. I remember before like Pesach, we would literally all go, like all the girls from the community with their moms to this woman's house. And she would come from overseas and bring like trunk loads of clothing. And everyone would go and choose like the outfits. And in the beginning, we thought it was amazing. And after I was like a little bit older, I'm like, Mom, I don't want to shop there. I don't want to be buying these clothes. Everyone's going there. 
It's not even cool. Right. At a certain age, we would go to like vintage stores and the markets down by the beach and kind of find our own clothing and then mix and match. And then like nothing would be modest available. So then Simi would get like a piece of crochet and add it to the bottom of the dress and make it look like it came that way or she designed it. It didn't look typically modest. We were difficult modest. for our mom because she was so not used to that. She wasn't into fashion at all. Not because she didn't like it, just it just wasn't her thing. So when her two daughters were like, actually, we want something different. We have something else to say. She was like, uh, uh, uh. it was like, how am I going to maneuver with this? But she did an unreal job. Well, it's interesting because you guys weren't like leaving the house and then like sneaking into your mini skirts or like ripping no. off whatever. You were still important to you. Taking yeah. off like pantyhose. I do. <laughs> Scandalous. So how do you guys come to start a clothing company? Fashion was always in our blood, like we said, from like when we were young. Like when we were teenagers, we started taking people like personal shopping because people started seeing like our friends in the community that we were modest, but we also looked cool and different. They were like, oh my gosh, how did you do that? Where, Where is that from? So... As young adults, we had a personal styling company and then we kind of drifted ways. Chaim moved to New York. I was in Ohio. And then one day after a couple of years, we were like, what, what are, are we, we doing? doing? <laughs> we want to be doing this and dressing ourselves and sharing what we love with other people. It was also like this bond that we had, this like fire. We like we could do something together. We can really make something of our fashion experience, our desire, our creativity. And that's just... It was born through that. That was the inspiration behind when we started. It's funny because I'm on your website, thefrocknyc.com, and I would wear everything on this website. Like, Yay. so it's it's, totally. it's it's interesting. It's not what you would expect for if we, you know, I think people who are not religious have an idea in their mind that modest dressing is restrictive. It is somehow not feminist. It is somehow not empowering. But it's also very, this is just so both on the trend right now, right? Like the, That is the whole point of what we do. We want mm-hmm. to liberate women like us who come from a world and a community where they feel like we're supposed to look and dress a certain way. And we're like, actually, you can be yourself. You can be cool. Heck, you can even be fashionable. And that I just the attitude is liberating, not just for us, but I think the world at large to be like, wow, orthodox women are smart, sophisticated, and they look cool too. It kind of takes us out of this box that we're put in. It's like, wow, look at them. A few, you know, completely unaffiliated Jews who were like, I kind of want to, you know, be a little bit more modest. I'm trying to find my faith. I want to explore this sort of dressing. And they were afraid of that. And then a few people reached out. I found you guys. Actually, there's a way to do this. Like, I don't have to change my identity. I don't have to become a whole new person. I can still wear jeans. There are ways to, you know, express myself and be myself. And I think in a deeper perspective, I think that's how we view our faith as well. It's not like compartmentalized. If you're practicing being orthodox and you're not happy because you're not yourself, it's not going to be your truth. And you're not going to be able to serve God in a real full way because you're denying parts of yourself. So we're really, it's about a wholesomeness. And I feel like... The clothes that we make are representative of so much more. It's not just an exterior. It's like your whole world can be a fusion of who you are and you shouldn't have to be afraid to share that. And so if I said to you, you don't look orthodox, like in in my conception, is that, how do you feel hearing that? I feel like that's a compliment. Not because I don't want to be, I'm very proud of being orthodox. Like if you said to me, are you wearing a wig? I'd be like, yes, I'm wearing a wig. I keep Shabbat. I keep kosher. I'm very proud of being Jewish. I'm not afraid to say it. I think we just, we just 
our nature is to want to be somewhat out of the box and to be more inviting to people. So if you're just classified in one box in one way, then you're kind of closed off to other experiences or to meeting people who are outside of that. But the fact that we don't necessarily look a certain way is less limiting. And I think that's... It also means that people that have a fear of what orthodox is and being orthodox, it's like, oh, it removes that fear because being orthodox doesn't mean you are a foreign crazy creature because a lot of people right or you're not a woman in you know in the business field or you're not educated like a lot of people know that and a lot of people don't has there been pushback from people in the orthodox community like how dare you have a button down you know how jeans wear ripped jeans yes there's we definitely get pushback in the beginning we freaked out when we got pushback because it's hard to get criticism and i remember the first time i wore a pair of pants under one of our dresses i wore it to shul And I was wearing, I promise you that my dress must have been like at least six feet wide. I was showing no shape, no skin, covered my knees, collarbone, elbows, everything. And I wore a pair of like skinny cigarette pants underneath. After Shabbat, I got a phone call from my best friend. She's like, Simi, people are calling me. How could you have worn pants to shawl? That's crazy. Meanwhile, I was looking around. I was probably by far the most modest looking dressed woman. No men would have cared to see that outfit because it's not that attractive at all. But it was very cool. <laughs> and we got a lot of pushback. And then the first time we posted Chai wearing a pair of jeans on Instagram. We got personal messages, like pe- women crying, like, how can you be this example to our daughters? How dare you show, you know, in our community, you dressing a certain way and what are you going to, you know, you're going to change them and you're going to influence them and they're never going to want to wear skirts again. They're going to corrupt. Their fear was that we were corrupting. And then it took us a while to realize that we're doing this because we are still those girls that hated the way our mom made us dress. And we have daughters. And I don't want my daughters growing up saying, I don't want to dress covered. I want them to feel like they can dress covered and still cool. And still express themselves and, express and be themselves. Jewish. Thanks for Anything that we put on Instagram, it's because that's what I want to teach my daughter. And that's what Chai is teaching her daughter that. Do you think that there are young girls who are pushed out of orthodoxy or sort of made to think that orthodoxy isn't for them? Are you maybe allowing space in I orthodoxy? It's just the dressing. I think it's a much bigger package when people are pushed so much. Like I look around, if I was raised where I felt much more pushed, I don't think I would have turned out the way I am. I, but I think dressing is a huge part of it for women. young girls growing up in Orthodox communities. And I have met countless of women who completely shaved heads, tattoos, jeans. I'm like, did you grow up in an Orthodox community? Because I hear an accent maybe, a bit of a Yiddish. And they're like, they did. And they never had any way to express themselves or any sort of freedom. And I think the modesty of the woman in certain communities can be a little bit oppressive. Not for everybody. Like some people love it and they're, they're fine to be in those boundaries. But for certain people... Unfortunately, it does push them away. We're not here to encourage and endorse saying, take off all your clothes, don't listen to your parents, don't be religious. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that by allowing the space to put yourself into how you're wearing, you can actually hold on to both your faith and your fashion. Right, and also understanding that modesty is not just black and white. There is space to be a little bit different. And putting the love into the modesty I think it's really important and that's what... It's a very serious conversation. No, I love this. and I'm, I'm like, supposed to be all funny. No, but it's, I think what you're doing is really amazing because you're giving women a space to express themselves and to still keep all these values and, and you know abide by these traditions that are meaningful to them. And then you're also introducing other women to the idea just of wearing great clothes. Pretty epic. Yeah. I think. So nice work, guys. Thank um, you. Thank you, Simi Polanski and Chaya Hineen, for telling us about The Frock NYC. Our listeners can follow along on Instagram at The Frock NYC and can shop 
thefrocknyc.com yes. and be outfitted in these amazing modest clothing that I'm about to order once we get out of the studio. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm so excited. This is awesome. Rabbi Ari Lam has been on the show before. He gave us his alternative take on Hanukkah. And now he's back for another alt.org.control.delete take on Purim. He's explaining why the beloved holiday of masks, groggers, and homentashen is not quite so pure, innocent, and uplifting as you were led to believe. Here's Liel with Rabbi Ari Lam. So Ari, um, next week is Purim, and it's such a big holiday that I understand that you have not one alt take on this holiday, but two. So in a leap year, in a Jewish leap year, there are two months of Adar. Right. So in honor of that tradition, I have two hashtag holiday hot takes for you. <laughs> All right. I want to start with the first, uh, which is something that I only read this year and have been obsessed with ever since. So, you know, we read the Megillah. It seems like kind of a feel-good story of the Jews surviving a kind of a brush with death, right? Uh, here is Haman, and he's plotting to destroy the Jewish people. Here are Esther and Mordechai, and they're very brave and resilient. And everyone feasts. Everyone celebrates. We drink. We, you know, play with the grogers. And yet, I read uh, this stream of academic articles that argue that actually we should see the Megillah very differently as basically a satire on why Jewish life anywhere else but the land of Israel is sad, depleted, and maybe even impossible. Do you want to explain this take to me? Yeah, so if you think about the conventional wisdom about the Purim story, it's sort of like the template of a classical Marvel superhero comic story. You have the you know, peaceful citizens of Metropolis who are just minding their own business. These are the Jews of Persia living in Shushan, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. And then you have enter the genocidal maniac supervillain right. who engineers a plot to destroy them. That's Haman. And then you have a mild-mannered character with a superhero alter ego that's only revealed into, you know, a little bit into the story. So you have Esther, who's the queen of the Persian Empire and whose identity nobody knows. All of a sudden, at the climax of the story, she reveals that she's really a Jew. Da, da, da. She steps into the phone booth, takes off her glasses, and all of a sudden, she's a Jewish superheroine, and she manages to save the day. And this is crucial in classic... Mar in the Marvel superhero comic tradition, she dispatches the villain with only as much force as is necessary to take down the supervillain. Uh, and it's a feel-good story, like you said, it's redemption, it's saving the day. But the Purim is satire story, which, you know, I go back and forth every other year. I am completely compelled by it. Another year I'm compelled by another version of the story. But it is really quite a convincing read of the Megillah. And it relies on what is just a very straightforward reading of the text of the Hebrew biblical book of Esther, where it begins is by looking at the some of the key words that appear again and again throughout the story and some of the elements of the story and essentially saying, what's the message that these elements of the story are trying to teach us? So let me give you an example. The key word that appears most often throughout the entire text is the word, the Hebrew word, melech, 
the word for king. So kingship, royalty, is a theme of the Megillah. And in fact, you know, from a superficial perspective, the monarch of the Purim story, Achashverosh, that's the Persian emperor Xerxes, for those who are following along <laughs> at home and who've watched 300, Xerxes, Achashverosh, is presented at the beginning of the story as this all-powerful king who rules the entire known world. And yet, the very first introduction to him that we have after this grandiloquent uh, soliloquy to his power is that he has this sort of like weird domestic squabble with his wife Vashti and instead of working it out with her it becomes a national affair and a national scandal and it throws the entire empire into disarray. Throughout the entire book of Esther this Melech, this king, doesn't make a single decision on his own uh, he's constantly and easily manipulated by all of his advisors, most of whom are acting in bad faith. By the end of the story, he's contradicted every single decision he's made at the beginning of the story. And the only conclusion we can take away from this is that the king is not really a king. Right. The most powerful person in the world is actually just an easily manipulated weakling. That's Ahasuerus. Give you another example. The other key word that appears dozens of times, two dozen times throughout the story, is the Persian loan word dat, which means law. And Persia is presented as a society that's grounded in the rule of law. And yet, the very first time that we're ever introduced to this word in the story of the Megillah, we're told that Ahasuerus throws this enormous party. It lasts for 180 days, open bar, I assume, right. and a smorg, right? As he throws this incredible party. The, the sushi alone. Yeah. And we're told that everything was done according to the meticulous rules of the Persian court, including drinking. Even the drinking was according to strict rules. But what was the strict rule of drinking? Which in Hebrew means uh, there were no rules. So it's sort of like that scene in Greece where like that guy in the car goes, the only rule is there ain't no rules. Mm -hmm. So that's what Persia is in the story of Megillat Esther. Every single rule is either a farce flimsy or meant to be broken or just ignored altogether. So Persia is sort of presented as this society that's grounded in the rule of law, but really it's this decadent, hedonistic, moral cesspool. Governed by an absolute idiot. Yeah, right, exactly. Thus far, most commentators who have studied the Book of Esther, from ancient commentators to contemporary ones, agree. The Persian Empire that we're introduced to in Megillat Esther Unlike, by the way, the Persian Empire we encounter throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible is presented as a decadent, terrible wasteland, you know, of a moral landscape. Where this Purim as satire reading takes things even further is that, uh, you know, in the last generation or generation or two, some very excellent commentators have argued that not only are the villain or background characters or kind of stage dressing of the Megillah meant to be satirical, but even the Jewish heroes themselves are actually not really heroes at all, and in fact are trying to teach us a lesson, namely that the Purim story could only have ended in tragedy and does end in tragedy. So let me set the stage for you. So for example, the you ask your average person on the street who's heard of the Purim story, name a hero from the Purim story, so they'll either tell you Queen Esther, or if they know a little bit more, they might tell you Mordechai. Those two names should set us off from the very beginning. The first time we're introduced to Mordechai, who's the leader of the Jewish community in Persia, we're told he's a Jewish man, a Judean man, and he lived in the capital, and he was powerful, and he was wonderful, and his name is Mordechai. Mordechai is uh, a Hebraicized form of the word Marduk, who's the king of the Babylonian pantheon. And Esther is a version of the term Ishtar. Ishtar was a goddess of the Babylonian pantheon. It would sort of be roughly equivalent to saying, you know, 
know, if you were telling a great Jewish story, you know, there was a heroic man. Right. He was in the capital. He was the leader of the community. And, and his, his name, name was, was Christopher Jefferson. Yeah. Jesus McChristian <laughs> face. Right. right. Something like that. So we're already supposed to be alerted from the very beginning that not all is right in Shushan. And then if you consider how the story goes, think about what happens to the Jewish people. You know, we're used to thinking that the story kind of takes place out of time. But if you think about what I told you earlier, which is that the emperor of the story, Ahasuerus, is Xerxes, that allows us to set the story in its chronological context. A generation earlier, in the era of the reign of Xerxes' father, an emperor named Darius, the Jews had actually rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. So as the story of Purim is taking place, there is a thriving Jewish community in the land of Israel with a temple. Doing it right. Doing it right. Doing it the real way. And consider even further than that, think about the contrast between the book of Esther and another biblical book called the book of Nehemiah, of Nehemiah, that's the Hebrew version of the name. In the book of Nehemiah, we're told about the valiant effort that some Jews who had been exiled from the land of Israel make to return to the land of Israel and rebuild the second temple, refurbish the city of Jerusalem, and reclaim Jewish roots and sovereignty in the land of Israel. And the critical dramatic moment of the book of Nehemiah and the book of Esther are actually identical. And the contrast between them allows us to see that the book of Esther is a satire not just on the Gentiles, but on the Jews as well. And that critical moment is that in in both books, Esther and Nehemiah, a Gentile king, not just the Gentile king, a Persian emperor asks a leader of the Jewish people, tell me what your heart desires. Tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. Half of my kingdom and I'll give it to you. And in the story of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is asked, your life in Persia is comfortable, you're doing well, you're successful, but tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. He responds to the Persian emperor by saying, you know what? I want Jewish destiny. I want to be returned to the land of Israel and I want to be able to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and I want to reclaim a Jewish community that's thriving in the land of Israel. He asks for the future of the Jewish people. Whereas in the book of Esther, the ask is, please please don't kill me. Please don't kill us. And by the time Esther is done, the Jews are literally exactly where they were at the beginning of the story, just peaceful citizens of Metropolis. Right. So nothing has changed. Right. And in fact, the very last sentence of the book is that, and by the way, we're still paying taxes to Ahasuerus. Right. So the book ends with tax policy, which is a weird choice if you think of the biblical book of Esther as a straightforward exercise in spiritual uh, advancement for the Jewish people. At the end of the day, it's just Jews living outside the land of Israel, doing exactly what they were doing before, not advancing, not building a sense of Jewish destiny, paying taxes to some random king who's going to collect taxes from here until infinity. Therefore, let us from henceforth read it as a parable about two vaguely assimilated Jews who fight a heroic fight for no other end but to survive in this bumbling, moronic kingdom, as opposed to those Jews who, at the same time, uh, strove for something grander, rebuilt a temple, and rekindled Jewish life in Israel at where it ought to be. If you want to be cynical about it, you could almost say that it's sort of like an ancient version of Seinfeld, where it's clearly (laughs) Jewish, it's got all the Jewish themes, everyone knows all the characters are Jewish, but by the end of it, you're literally exactly where you were right at the beginning Mm -hmm. of it, and nothing has changed in terms of Jewish history. No no hugging, no learning. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. 
was part one of Liel's conversation with Rabbi Ari Lam. We've held a little bit of it for after the credits. We sometimes put stuff there. So if you listen to the end of the episode and keep going, you'll hear part two of the conversation. And I assure you, it is worth your time. Guys, if you want to see us live, the one thing you need to know, your one-stop shopping for all of our appearances is tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. If you go there, you will learn about events that one, two, or three of us are doing in Amherst, Massachusetts, Boca Raton, Florida, Long Island, New York, Virginia Beach, Virginia, or good old New York City, and more. Go there, tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive, and we will see you in real life. Mazel tovs. Liel, whom would you like to send a mazel tov to this week? Honestly, the people of the great state of Israel. That's always your mazel tov. It's always it's my always mazel, tov mazel tov because these people, listen, if you're going to vote three times in one year and still kept a good you know, humor about it, you deserve all the mazel tov in the world. So this is, is, this is a pro-BB stance. This is this is a pro democracy stuff. Oh, I see. It's okay. Democracy in which more elections equals more democracy. The, uh, it's true. The more election, the more democracy. People like the democracy. Liel, you give your mazel tov to Israel. I give my mazel tov to the Jewish heartland of Chattanooga, Tennessee. The other Woo-hoo! promised land. Where four babies were born between October and December of 2019. Four Jewish babies. There were actually more babies than that. <laughs> but four babies were born in the Jewish community. At least four. Uh, before they were born, their wonderful Rabbi Craig Lewis and educator Lily Dropkin at Mizpah Congregation pulled the community together for a Jewish baby university. That's JBU. A class on Jewish parenting, building Jewish homes for these new members of the tribe. And one of the parents, Lindsay Dodson, wrote in and told us, in so doing, they built an incredible parent community for us, and we've continued to meet monthly for brunches and get-togethers. I Jewish love that. Jewish Baby University is the only university that matters in America. Yeah, right I now. feel like I went to Jew- I went to Jewish Baby University. I'm by being still on paying off my loans with me and Liel by being a baby. Being a baby. And I love that the alumni reunions are all brunches. That's They're bagel brunches. JBU meets forevermore once a month Jewish at Jewish Bagel, bagel University. Mazel tov to all the Jews of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Also, a uh, big mazel tov to David Zimmerman and the rest of Yavna Academy in Dallas for winning the Texas Association of Private and Parochial Schools Basketball State Championship. It was the team's 18th consecutive victory. Very auspicious. Question, do they continue to try to win again next time? Or do you want to keep it at 18? You want to get no, to 36. Now you go to 36. You get to 36. Right? <laughs> to 120. Then, then you let the Catholics have one. I like it when Jew, when Jewish schools are referred to as parochial schools, which is like an old-timey way of saying any any religious school. Like, but to me, just, parochial just feels Christian. They're very. It does feel very... It's like fellowshipping. Yeah. It's very It's very Christian. It's uh, like finally, um, straight from my heart, Judy Scheinland, TV's Judge Judy, is being canceled after 25 what? years. Now, now, fret not because she's going to live on in reruns forever, and she's looking for a new home, a new network to continue producing. I thought she got one. She says she got one, but it's 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 being worked out. I have to say- It's in negotiations. What a dumb, Weasley thing for the network. What network runs her? I CBS think CBS owns the show. What a Weasley thing. Like, oh, we already have 25 years of you. We don't need new you. We'll just run Could old we you. offer her like a this to fourth fair, seat right here on our podcast? To be fair, they- they may not need more of her. I mean, she's she's seen everything there is to see in in Night Court. Yeah, uh, but like, don't fire a person and then just live off that person's labor. Like CBS, I hope, 
I hope you really become you, some subsidiary of Netflix. I hope so many people stop you rot watching. And rerun yeah, that, that Antonia Ellison interview really got Netflix. to you, Leo. <laughs> um, Power to the people. I just want to say that my kids' experience of going to Grandma's house in Springfield is that they watch. They Judge go to Grandma Judy. Judge Judy. It's like you get all the ice cream you want and you eat it on the sofa while watching Judge Judy. And at least she's living on in real. You know, at for least. some people, going to Grandma is going to Judge Judy's house. <laughs> my mother does not run as many kangaroo courts as <laughs> like it's a, it's a far more benevolent place the one upside of this could be that if she has a little break before she starts up at her new network with her new show maybe we can get judy shineland on as a jewess of the week yeah just put it out there i think she'd be sure we're gonna put Secret that out, it there out there in Love the universe the judge hey do you have a muscle tub? i have the biggest muscle tub of all time two our associate producer sarah fredman ader who has as of this airing been with us for a year you guys don't actually see her Sarah and you don't hear her, Fredman but the work Eater. that she does. Sarah Fredman Guys, stop singing the Sarah Fredman Eater song. The work that she does for the show, she got us so unbelievably organized. She like took us to a place of like docs and charts and this and that. And she she's also just... introduced us to the Montserrat typeface. Her her docs are yes. all, the font is all, you know, we were we were rocking some Palatino, some Garamond. She does everything in the clean I sans really love that. Montserrat. And I, I want to urge that on all but of also you. But she's, also, she's really been a great addition to us. She's brought us so many ideas and she she's actually really, yes, yeah, she's made us, she makes us food a lot. She Big brings cookies goods. in and that's not even why we like her. We just, that's just an extra bonus. She's so great. Sarah, we love you. So Thank smart, you. Please so stay with organized. us forever. Absolutely. So Amen. Amen. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869 or do the super choice thing of recording a voice memo and emailing it to us. Subscribe to our newsletter bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. We come to you live often to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's cross with a K at jcross at tabletmag.com. Do you need to wear and carry unorthodox to your Passover Seder, your Purim party, or your Shavuos gathering well you can get unorthodox swag and gear go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt follow us on instagram or on twitter join our facebook group our show is produced by josh cross our associate producers are sarah fredman ader and alana levinson our artwork is by esther Werdiger, and our theme music is by golem they are online at golemrocks.com our mailbox theme is by steve barton rabbinic supervision this week by rabbi amy shinerman of columbia maryland also rabbinic supervision from the sky by james lipton the rabbi of the actors studio to whom we bid farewell we come to you from argo studios which so far has refused to drop out of the race and throw its support behind Joe Biden. Shalom, friends. So Ari, um, you have another read on the Book of Esther, and the Book of Esther is, I think, important enough to merit many hot takes. Something happens uh, in this book towards the end-ish of the book, uh, last third, I would say, that not a lot of us stop to think about often. What happens in that book? So the book of Esther concludes with a slaughter. The, namely, the Jews slaughter their opponents. Not just their, not just slaughters them. Even The Jews even request extra time to slaughter more of them, right. Persian citizens. Now, 
to give some context to why some context to why that's important, let's back up a little bit from a literary standpoint. Again, and this is another consensus opinion amongst those commentators, both traditional and academic, what have you, who study the Book of Esther, is that it is beyond clear that the Book of Esther is intentionally, I think, intentionally responding to the story of Joseph, the biblical story of Joseph. So to give some context, in the Book of Genesis, Joseph is the son of the patriarch Jacob, and he's sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. This is long, long before the Purim story. He's sold into slavery in Egypt, and he rises up through the ranks of Egyptian society to become the second in command to the pharaoh of Egypt, and he sets economic policy for the pharaoh, and eventually he's reunited with his brothers, and that's how the Jews end up in Egypt and become slaves, and that's the Passover story. We'll get to that later. But the book of Esther actually is responding directly to that story, so much so that there are certain terms that appear only in the book of Esther, or certain phrases that appear only in the book of Esther and in the Joseph story. So Esther, for example, is described, you know, I always wondered when I was growing up, you know, the way the first time that we're at, that we ever meet Esther in the book of Esther, uh, we're told by the Bible that she's incredibly good looking and so on. And I always thought it was so strange. It's like a right. PG production. Like, yeah. why are we being told what? Uh, so now as you grow older and you realize that the Torah is anything but that, but still it always struck me as incongruous. And the answer is that the reason it describes Esther that way is because it uses those exact words to describe Joseph Joseph. the first time we meet him. Now, the way that Esther responds to the Joseph story, and it's not the only biblical story to do this. There are several biblical stories that are commenting on the Joseph story. But what the Esther story does, in some ways, is kind of updating the Joseph story or critiquing it in, in an interesting way or commenting on it. And it says that, you know, Joseph, what Joseph does is he becomes a tool of the government. Um, And he just kind of goes along with whatever the government says. He doesn't have any policy prescriptions or proclivities of his own. He just goes with the flow. And the end result of that, of Jews sort of, of Jews in power not actually being Jewish um, or not- Slavery. Yeah, they end up as slaves. And the moral of uh, of the Esther story from that perspective is Jews actually have to be Jews. And it's okay for Jews to seize power, or not seize power, but it's okay for Jews to- be in power and wield power and as use that Jews. power to, to protect their own and use that power so, to protect themselves. So, so here's something curious the story you would think ends, uh, Haman and his sons and anyone involved with the plot are, are hung on a tree. You would think that the crisis has been averted, you would think this is the happy ending we've all been waiting for. That the would villain, be the Marvel ending, right? The, the villain has been defeated. Now it's time for like some Daniel Mon, like some jokes, etc. Instead, the Megillah gives us, uh, as you said and asking for a few extra days of bloodletting to kill not only the supervillain, but every single person who was down to partake in this plot and hurt the Jews. How many people are killed? I mean, it's 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 tons and tons of people. I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it's- Tens it's, of thousands. Yeah, it's of thousands persons. and thousands of people are killed. And the lesson of the story is that uh, Jews- are not supposed to respond to threats to their existence or even beyond just their existence. Jews may not, must not live in a society that permits the powerful to victimize the weak and in particular to victimize the Jewish people by sending strongly worded letters or or tutting statements from the ADL. Jews have to respond actually by punishing those who would do evil and by using force of arms to do so. That's how the Jews respond to the threat of Persia. And they insist that Persian society needs to be a place where such people cannot exist and cannot live. And the best way to see this, by the way, is by 
by thinking about some of, you know, we just talked about how Esther responds to the Joseph story, but there were many subsequent works of Jewish thought and Jewish narrative that respond to the book of Esther that help us see this. My favorite one is the book. It's little known. You could also only find it in the Greek Bible. It's the book of Third Maccabees. Now, it has nothing to do with the Maccabees. It's called Third Maccabees because it comes after First and Second Maccabees, right. and no one could think of a good title. So it's sort of like untitled project. Um, the book of Third Maccabees has uh, exactly the same plot as the book of Esther. There's a king, you know, and there's a high-ranking official in the government who tries to exterminate all the Jews of Alexandria. And there's a, you know, there's a Jew who saves the king from assassination and all the Jew, you know, and eventually everything turns around and the Jews are able to take revenge upon their enemies. And so the difference, however, is that in Third Maccabees, which is quoting from the Greek version of Esther, I mean, it's clearly a response to the Greek version of Esther, in 3rd Maccabees, the Jew who saves the king is not Mordechai, who's the hero of the story. It's a man named Dosiphius, who is an apostate Jew, and he's the villain of the story. In 3rd Maccabees, the Jews, rather, uh, in the book of Esther, the Jews uh, kill the perpetrators. They kill the non-Jewish citizens who are making the empire unsafe. In the book of 3rd Maccabees, the Jews actually aren't allowed to take revenge upon Gentiles. They have to take revenge upon apostate Jews, so right. it's all intra-violence. In the book of Esther, the evildoer is the viceroy to the king. In 3rd Maccabees, the villain is the king himself. And in the, the book of Esther, the Jews engineer their victory through political uh, through political maneuvers that they implement themselves. As you said earlier, God doesn't play an overt role in the book of Esther. In the book of 3rd Maccabees, the Jews are up the creek without a paddle. The only way the story turns around is because God directly intervenes and makes the king go insane and he allows the Jews to get off scot-free. So from that perspective, if you compare Esther to the alternative story you could have told, what you see is that Esther might actually be a manifesto, not a satire, a manifesto for how the Jews are supposed to comport themselves in exile. And that is Jews should be proudly Jewish. They should advocate for Jewish interests. They should be willing to oppose those Jew or non-Jew who are treating them unjustly and who are advocating for a society in which the weak or the religious or what have you are being mistreated or being relegated to a secondary status. The Jews actually should be comfortable wielding power and not just wielding power, you know, as a, as a Jew in the home, but a man on the street. Jews should actually be comfortable wielding power as Jews. As a Jew. That's how Jews should behave in the exile and diaspora because with Israel as our homeland and the, the land of Israel and today the state of Israel as our anchor, Jews actually should be projecting influence, a positive transformative influence throughout the world. That's our mission. Our mission is to spread our values and to model positively for people throughout the world. And you could argue that the Esther story is a version of that. You have the temple standing in Jerusalem. You have a thriving Jewish polity with a with a, that that became the epicenter of a flourishing Jewish culture. And then you had Jews in the diaspora positively advocating for Jewish existence and for a virtuous society throughout the world in the Persian Empire. And remember, the Persians had been our great allies in allowing for the or in facilitating the temple being constructed in Jerusalem in the first place. So the Jews actually had a stake in how the Persian Empire behaved. The, the Persian president moved the temple to Jerusalem. Is, exactly. Is what you're saying. Right. right. Well, folks, uh, there you have it. Two versions of the Purim story, one that sees all Jewish life anywhere outside of the state of Israel as really a farce, and the second that uh, calls out on Jews to take up arms against those who try to hurt them. 
And、uh, you are free, of course, to choose whichever version offends you more. Ari Lam, thank you so much. My greatest pleasure. Sarah Fredman Ader. Sarah Fredman Ader. Woo! Sarah Fredman Ader. Sarah Fredman Ader. Don't call her Sarah, because <laughs> I will cut you.